I was trying to remember, um, I think it was the last time we had a family meal that uh, several of us were talking about uh, great men of the Bible and how nearly every single one of them had a major character flaw. And we were trying to think of who, it was there one that didn't, that at least we didn't have recorded for us a major character flaw. We went through uh, Abraham. Abraham couldn't tell the truth to save his soul. Uh, Isaac, his son, learned from the master how to lie. Um, we, you know, you look at you look at Moses. Not maybe real big stuff, but he certainly at first, if you were in our midweek study, at first very timid, and, um, and you know, we, if you go down the list, David, uh, Saul, Samuel. I think Daniel was the only one that we recognized that really did, we didn't have anything recorded in terms of a major flaw. Um, but if, if you were to think of the, the, the great heroes, the great men of the Bible, certainly David would, would, would be near the top of the list. Um, and yet David um, uh, had tremendous flaws. And it's interesting to me that of all of the men uh, of the Bible, the great men of the Bible... Uh, there's only one, and it was David, who was called a man after God's own heart. Um, which is interesting to me, because it seems like uh, you, you, you could have said that about all of them. I mean, if they, all of them had great flaws. What was it about David that he was characterized that way? Well, I'm going to start a new series today, and I'm, and I'm going to call this The Greatest Hits from the 50s. And uh, we're going to look at Psalms from in the 50s. Today we're going to look at Psalm 51. So if you open your Bible to Psalm 51. While you're turning there, uh, actually when you get there, place a marker. Because we are going to go back to 2 Samuel. But we will start in Psalm 51. Let's read the superscription together. You'll see that right under under the, 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 the title Psalm 51. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is actually part of the Hebrew text. This is part of the inspired word of God. This is not something the, the editors did from your Bible. This, this is actually part of the text. Um, it's not. It's not very common for um, the authors of Psalms to give us the, the historical setting. We we do see it in several places, but this is this is unusual that they give us the specific setting. And what is the setting? The setting here of Psalm 51 is when after Nathan the prophet came to David after he had gone into Bathsheba. So now turn back to Second Samuel. One of, the, one of the dangers of preaching the greatest hits is these are psalms that we've all heard and we've probably heard, uh, you know, multiple sermons on. Uh, but in 2 Samuel uh, uh, 11, uh, then it happened in the spring of the time when kings go out to battle 
that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. The key there is in the spring when kings go out to battle, when kings are supposed to be out battling and going to war, where was David? He was home. He should have been at work. He was in a place he shouldn't have been. <laughs> he, was at, he, he was at home. And one evening came, David arose from his bed and walked. He, he walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the, the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers, and this is, this is key, and took her. That's key. He didn't invite her. He, he took her. They took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her cleanness, she returned to her house. And obviously, nine months later, she conceived. We don't know how much time went on, um, but we do know that Nathan... Um, uh, approaches David. By the way, he compounds the problem by by conspiring to Uriah's uh, uh, untimely death, putting him, telling Joab to put him in the front lines, which would have been unusual for for uh, someone like Uriah to be in the front lines. You know, that's where the grunts go. No offense, but you know, that's where the private first class, not 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 generals like Uriah. But he, he had it arranged so that certainly at the, mo- the, the, the text says where the battle is the hottest, that's where I want you to place Uriah. And of course, Uriah is killed. And in 12, Nathan comes to David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and after he came to him and said, that There were two men in the city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, and, but the poor man had nothing except this little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat his bread. This is, a, this is such a neat little story. This, this precious little ewe lamb and completely defenseless and helpless. Uh, now a traveler, verse 4, came to the rich man. and He was unwilling to take his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Our um, our modern day church has not uh, escaped a scandal, <laughs> sexual scandals, and um, I, I, I I hate it when we call it moral failure. Um, why don't we just call it like the Bible calls it, adultery? He committed adultery. It's not our leaders don't commit moral failures. <laughs> they commit adultery, fornication, and David was king. And it's bad enough that it's been recorded. I want you to imagine. Uh, just, I want you to imagine your most sinful, embarrassing moment in the past. And we're all going to share, by the way. Uh, so, so pick one that you want to share. Um, 
No, seriously, pick, pick the moment, and I'm sure it instantly can come to mind for some of us, maybe there's more than one, uh, that moment of the, the most de- degraded time of your life when you committed a, just a de- degrading sin. And what would it feel like for the rest of us to know what it is? David's worst hour has been recorded for countless millions for years. And then, on top of all that, David himself pens what we now call Psalm 51. And look at Psalm 51 again. And what does he say? The first line, for the choir director... David says, you know what, not only does everybody know what I did, but I want us to sing about it. Think about this for a minute. Don't let that escape you. For the choir director, this is something that would have been sung. And I'm sure, obviously, we are all very familiar with Psalm 51. David, a man after God's own heart. Maybe Psalm 51 gives us a glimpse as to maybe one of the reasons why he is said to be a man after God's own heart. I've entitled this The Anatomy of Biblical Confession. If if, if we were to stop and, and, and write out some criteria of what we felt... Um, constituted spiritual maturity or spiritual wholeness. I suppose we would say things like, you know, that they read their Bible regularly, that they have a regular devotional life. Maybe we would say, obviously, prayer, that they have a consistent prayer life. That someone who is spiritually mature and spiritually whole has a regular consistent prayer life. Maybe we'd say they have a, a, a firm grasp on the historic on historic Christian doctrine. I mean that they, they understand and know the doctrine of justification and how we are saved. Um, I wonder though how many of us would say confession of sin as being a criteria for spiritual maturity. And spiritual wholeness. Let's look at that this morning. The anatomy of biblical confession. Psalm 51 verses 1 and 2. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Now, uh... This is what we call uh, a chiasm. Chiasms are everywhere in, 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 in our Hebrew, the Hebrew portion of our Bible. So what I've done is I've given you... Now, this is included in, your, in the price this morning, so you don't have to pay any extra for this. But if you take this handout, that was a joke, Ruth. Uh, you can pay if you want. Um, this is... This is uh, I hand this out to you because I, hopefully in, in, in preaching, I don't just preach would help you learn to study the Bible for yourself, too. This is a, this, this is a, this is a, a literary technique that, that is all over the place in the Old Testament. It's called chiasm. And this is why this is significant. Is 
Um, chiasm comes from the, the, the Greek letter key, C-H. And if you look at uh, the letter key, looks like an X. Although the, the, the end, you're supposed to curve the ends a little bit. So it's not just an X. And that's, by the way, that's the shorthand we get for Christmas. It, it, actually, that X is not an X out Christmas, and we, you know, we take to the streets with our placards. Put Christ back in Christmas. Now, that, 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 that's a, that stands for the letter key which, in Greek, which is transliterated in English as C-H. Okay. Um, chiasm. Why would they use chiasms? Chiasms, so if, if you look at one side of the, the X, it goes from out to in and then in to out. Um, on that sheet I gave you, verses 1 and 2 form a chiasm. And, and if, if you look there, the, the, the A is, Be gracious to me, O God. And then he says, According to your loving kindness. So that would be B. And then he moves back out. He repeats B. So that would be B1, and he goes back out to A1. In a chiasm, the portion that's, that's at the fulcrum is what the author wants, it is trying to emphasize. That is the emphasis of, the, uh, of, of what he's written. So look again at the chiasm. What is David emphasizing in verses 1 through 2? Is he emphasizing... Be gracious to me, O God. Is he emphasizing, blot out my transgressions? No. What is he emphasizing? His compassion and his mercy. In other words, confession begins with an appeal for mercy. And this is what David is emphasizing. It's interesting that when David approaches Almighty God, to confess his sin, he begins with a plea for mercy or grace. This is another word for grace. Grace and favor. According to your greatness of your compassion. According to your loving kindness. Loving kindness is hard to translate into English. It's, it's, um, it's, it's loving kindness, steadfast love, loyal love. It is, it is unconditional love. It is unconditional acceptance. And, and quite frankly, I don't know that I fully grasp that. I can't fully grasp how God can love me unconditionally. Do you know, do you understand that God will never love you God can never love you more than he loves you right now. And he can never love you less than he loves you right now. Um, I read a book by John Owen. John Owen was, was one of, probably one of the greatest minds that ever lived, in my opinion. But certainly within the church. He was a Puritan pastor and, and theologian. And he wrote a book called Communion with God. And he said, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I'll obviously paraphrase in my own language. He says, we often, we often view God the Father as kind of the stern disciplinarian. You know, he's, he's the one who is, you know, with wrath and, and discipline. And, and in my own vernacular, you know, he, he's like the dean of the students. You know, he's the one that everybody goes to when they get in trouble. Because he's the one that lays down the law. And he's the one that applies the law. He's the one that's, you know, suspending and expelling. And, and, and oftentimes... We have kind of have that view of that. Jesus is the loving one, right? He's the he's the he's the loving one, and you know he's always kind of trying to he's kind of you know good good cop to the bad cop, 
I mean, let's be honest. A lot of us have that view of God, God the Father. But it's interesting, the love, the love of the Godhead, the Scripture says, begins with the Father. God the Father loves us. He loved us so much, He sent His Son to die for us. As David approached confession of this, this, uh, this unimaginable act of adultery, of compromise, of sin. He doesn't start with his sin. He doesn't start, <laughs> he doesn't start asking God he, for things. What he, he starts with is he's, he reminds, he's reminding himself, and he's coming to the Father, and he is, he is making an appeal based on God's mercy and God's grace and God's loving kindness, God's love for him. We begin all confession of sin. We, we begin all of our sin as followers of Christ with the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of the Father. God loves us. Again, he says, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. But he appeals for two things. He says, be gracious to me. In other words, I, I, I want to experience that grace, that favor, that mercy. Grant me that favor. Grant me that mercy. And then he says, wash me thoroughly. Blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is, this is his appeal. The, the basis of the appeal is God's loving kindness and God's mercy. But the appeal itself is, he says, I, I want you to blot out my sin. This is a, a metaphor of, um, of a debt that was owed. And, and they would take it and they would erase the name. They would blot out the name. In other words, this debt is no longer owed. He has an appeal for mercy based on his loving kindness, based on his steadfast love. And it's interesting to me that, that he begins his confession not with his sin, but he, can, he begins his confession with God's love and God's mercy. And he, he makes his appeal based on, on that. But the second thing, he is an acknowledgement of sin. This is the, really the heart of the confession, his acknowledgement of sin. Look to me at verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. An acknowledgement of his sin. The first thing I notice is that he accepts full responsibility. Look at verse 3. I, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He didn't hide it. He didn't rationalize it. He didn't trivialize it. He didn't excuse it. He didn't ignore it. How many times do we go, eh, 
God convicts us of a sin, we go, it really wasn't that bad. I'll try to do better next time. It really wasn't that bad. David confessed it. In other words, he acknowledged it. He didn't hide it. He didn't rationalize it. We, we have, guys, we have to stop ignoring our sin. We have to become more aware of our sin. Now, one of the things I'm going to caution us, though, having said that, we need to be cautious about becoming morbidly introspective, too. I mean, the deeper I dig into my heart, I'll tell you what I'll find there. <laughs> but what I'm talking about is, is when, when the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, don't ignore it. Don't rationalize it. And it's interesting to me, he says, not only that I know my transgressions, but my sin is ever before me. Now, again, we don't know how long it had been before he penned this, when he penned this, from when he had committed adultery. But the image image here is of guilt. my, My sin was everywhere I went. My sin was before me. Uh, I, I have a degree in English. My undergraduate degree is in English with a, uh, the, the uh, concentration in, in English lit. Obviously, if, you, if you're in English lit, you read a lot of Shakespeare. How many of you ever read Macbeth? Okay. All the engineers didn't. Um, they should have made you, you know what? They should have made you guys read Macbeth, at least. Okay. Well, long story short, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, they, they, they assassinate Duncan, they kill Duncan. And Lady Macbeth thinks that her hands are clean and, and she starts having nightmares. And uh, she has these nightmares. One of the nightmares is, is she can't get the spot of blood off her hand. Everywhere she goes, she sees this spot of blood, this guilt. And that famous, that famous uh, line from Shakespeare, out, finally she, her, her, her guilt reaches a crescendo and she says, out, damn it, spot. She couldn't, she couldn't get rid of it. And in fact, that guilt haunted her to the end of her life. The Psalms have a, has a very simple solution for guilt. And what is it? Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Not only guilt, um, but other effects that unconfessed sin can have in our lives. Uh, a companion uh, psalm is really Psalm 32, if you want to turn there uh, with me. David says, how blessed is the, is, is, I, 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 t- I, I take this probably was, would be penned after 51. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But, but look, at, look at what the list of what, how, how unconfessed sin affected him. The weight of guilt affected David. Verse 3 when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Unconfessed sin can affect us physically, can, can affect our health. 
Verse 4, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This is a continual conviction. In in 51, he he talks about his conscience. He says that, again, that that your, your sin was ever before me. In verse 8, skip down to verse 8, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. What's the implication? When he says, help me, make me to hear joy and gladness, what's the implication? He had lost it. He was not experiencing joy and gladness. It's interesting to me that maybe the reason why I don't experience more joy in my life is because I have unconfessed sin. An acknowledgement of sin. He accepted responsibility. He, he dealt with the weight of his guilt. But not only that, but he recognized the ultimacy of his sin. Look with me again in, in 51 verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, when he says you and you only, it doesn't mean that there weren't any, anyone, wasn't anyone else he sinned against. But he's talking about ultimacy. Ultimately, you are the one who I've sinned against. The, the, the true nature, the true offended party in sin is, is God the Father. Perfect, holy, righteous God. He recognized the ultimacy. It wasn't just against Uriah. It wasn't just against Bathsheba. It wasn't against his own family. It was, but ultimately and most importantly, it was against God himself. And we need to start seeing sin that way. He said, in fact, God, you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. When did God speak and when did God judge David for the episode with Bathsheba? Nathan. And Nathan was a prophet. And uh, what's God's word to us today? The apostles and the prophets. God, this. When was the last time I read God's word and I was convicted of sin because of what I read? <laughs> one, of the, one, of the, one of the purposes of God's word is, is not just to draw out neat ideas. And, and yes, we learn about the Father's love for us. That's the, that's the whole basis for all of this. We cannot forget that. We cannot diminish that but one of the one of the purposes of God's word guys when we read God's word is is to correct us and rebuke us like Nathan rebuked David we have a whole record of the apostles and prophets whose very words convict us Luther Martin Luther once said the Bible is not my friend because the Bible, again, I'm paraphrasing, because the Bible sees through all of my, um, all of my charades and all, of my, all the things that I put up in front of other people, it sees right through that and, and goes to the heart of the matter in my life. We read, in fact, that, the, the, that in Hebrews 4.12, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, to dividing even to soul in spirit. 
and he realized the pervasiveness of his sin. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now this may have a double meaning. In sin my mother conceived me. That, that in fact this was a, a sin. David had, was committed. In other words, David, you could say, that the child was born and you know, conceived in iniquity. It was, an, it was an act of iniquity. But I think more than that, this he, he's simply saying, and I think the NIV gets at this, I was sinful from the moment I was conceived. It wasn't that the sexual act was, was sinful. But when I was conceived, I was sinful. I'll never forget when I went before the, uh, the evangelical free church, we had you know, become registered in the evangelical free church. You had to go before this committee and, and defend your doctrine and everything. And, and, and the guy that was in charge of church planning asked me this question. He said, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we sin? I said, oh, clearly, clearly we are sinners because we, we sin because we are sinners. Oh, no. And he, he, he said, no, 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 that's not right. So I, so I took him I took right to 51.3, 51.5. We sin because we're sinners. I, I have two new grandchildren. They are sinners. Right now, in the womb, they are sinners. Their, their nature is one of sin. They're not blank slates. They are sinners. David recognizes the pervasiveness of sin. This is what we call original sin. By the way, all you C.S. Lewis, anybody like C.S. Lewis? I hate to I hate to tell you, he denied the doctrine of original sin. He had some really bad doctrine. He denied the original sin. David said, "Listen, I was I was sinful from the moment I was conceived." By the way, I like C.S. Lewis. I, I quote him from time to time. Although I have to give him I have to give caveats to it. Is all that's all I'm saying. He realized the pervasiveness of his sin. And in verse 6, he notes that truth and wisdom are to be equally pervasive, deep in his soul. The, 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 the restoration and renewal needs to be as equally pervasive in his soul. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. So David begins with an appeal for mercy. And then he moves to, the, to an acknowledgement of his sin. And finally he ends with a plea for forgiveness. Or two words that we're going to find in this section, verses 7 through 12, is to restore and to renew. Um, for, for the believer, all our sins are already forgiven. So, in essence, when we, we ask for forgiveness, we, we're already forgiven. Um, what we are asking for, though, is we acknowledge our sin and we are asking for restoration and renewal. We recognize that that sin has meant something and, and we, we need restoration and renewal. In fact, this is exactly what David recognizes. And he gives us a series of overlapping requests. It's, it's as if he's tripping over his own tongue. 
to ask for this kind of renewal and restoration in so many different ways. Look at verse 7. He says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a branch that they would dip in the blood, and, and they would sprinkle on the offering. We see, we see this hyssop, for those of you in Wednesday nights, in, in, in Exodus 12, with the blood over, remember the, the Passover, the blood over the doors? He said to take a, a hyssop branch and do that. Um, we see in Leviticus 14, as, as we move in Wednesday night, as we move into Leviticus, we see the, the hyssop being used. The hyssop branch was used for a cleansing of lepers. It was what they would use to signify the cleansing of a leper. And so David says, I want you to take this hyssop and cleanse me like, like you would a leper. Wash me white as snow. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let, let, the, let the bones, listen to this, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. This is metaphorical, obviously. That, that brokenness that I feel, mend it. Make me hear joy and gladness again. Verse 9, he says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He repeats verse 1. Blot blot them out, erase them. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Look at all the ways that David uses to express him seeking forgiveness. Cleanse me, wash me, blot out. Make me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a clean heart. Same word, barah, that we see in Genesis 1.1. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, meaning don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, now this was before uh, Pentecost. This was before the sending uh, of the, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, who now resides in us. And that's a whole other topic of what does it mean to reside in us. But, but the, the Holy Spirit would come and go before Pentecost, well, actually before Jesus' ascension. And so we don't apply this in the standpoint of, oh, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Holy Spirit indwells us, permanently indwells a believer. What he's saying, though, in this case is, is don't take away your blessing from me. Look at all the ways that he expresses this. Again, let me ask the question, what is it that constitutes true spiritual maturity and spiritual wholeness? Is it not... A robust confession of sin as I become aware of it, as God brings it to my attention. So let me close with two different things. Keep short accounts on sin. When I, when I played football, when we reported to two-a-days... I, I, I was running back, so I carried the ball a lot, and some guys wore pads on their arms. You know, they wore elbow pads, whatever, and 
I, I never, I just couldn't do that because I wanted to feel the ball. Well, consequently, the, the first couple, the first couple days, my arms would get really, really sore. Um, all, all, all positions. I'm, I'm sure Pat, offensive lineman, the same thing. You know, your arms get get really sore, and, and it's at some point, almost excruciatingly, you just barely touch it. It's so sore. But over a period of time, you know, you develop some callousness, and you, it just doesn't hurt anymore. And I think that's a good illustration for sin, that when we ignore and we don't confess our sin, it's kind of like it hurts at first, but the more we ignore it at, after a while, we don't even, we're, we're just oblivious to our sin. So I asked myself, as I was, I was praying and looking at this psalm, this great hit from the 50s, over this past week, so I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you, over this past week, how many times have you confessed sin in your life? Well, let me ask you this. How many times have you sinned? Let's start there. How many times have you sinned this week? Who knows how many? Sometimes maybe not even knowing. But how many times have I sinned this week and how many times have I confessed that sin? Again, be cautious of morbid self-introspection, of course. But I think that, that more times than not, we, we know when we sin, but we ignore it. Or we rationalize it. Rather than dealing with it, rather than appealing to God for His grace and His mercy, acknowledging it, confessing it, and then asking for renewal and restoration. We move on in the grace and the forgiveness of God. When we hide our sin, when we suppress our sin, when we ignore our sin, then we're going to start experiencing stuff that God talks about. We'll lose our joy and our gladness. The, 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 the weight of guilt, whether we realize it or not, the weight of guilt will, will affect our lives, our, our emotions, our relationships. The anatomy of biblical confession, an appeal for mercy, an acknowledgement of sin, and of course a plea for forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your steadfast love that never changes, that's unconditional. And Father, um, we acknowledge that we continually fall short of your glory. Father, I pray that we become more aware of our sin, not in a morbid, introspective way, but in a way of which we keep short accounts and we confess our sin to you. Father, I've never been more convinced that really one of the keys to spiritual wholeness and spiritual maturity is biblical confession. So we thank you and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would someone get Vicky? Okay. Um, we're going to do things a little differently this morning. Obviously, we, we, we waited till the very end for, for Lord's Supper. I thought it would be important, appropriate in light of our psalm this morning to wait until after the sermon. Um, as we come to the table... 
we, we like David, uh, cry out, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That we recognize that these, these elements represent the body and blood of Christ who died for us, um, who shed his blood for us, and, uh, and it is, in fact, our desire uh, to, to, that he would restore to us joy and gladness and create in us a clean heart. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm just going to open up the table, and you will come and, and get your bread and, and get your cup and go back to your seat, and then you'll wait until we're all ready, and then we will um, participate together. Okay? So you come. night that is betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, broken for you. Whenever you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance. Please stand. 